0: This podcast is about the earliest signs of an emerging trafficking empire and the corrupt politicians that profited from it. It is about the decades of abuse of minority communities disguised as public policies. It is about that system that nurtured an uncontrollable monster that continues to birth ultra-violent and merciless reapers. Understanding the war on drugs and its resulting insurgency is critical in understanding the Mexico we know today. This is the moler. Differently from the two other drugs that we have discussed, the coca leaf is not massively cultivated in Mexico. In fact, there have only been two known coca leaf plantations found in the country. The first was discovered in the municipality of Tuxla Chico in Chiapas in 2014. And the second was discovered seven years later in 2001 in Atoyac de Alvarez, Guerrero. Coca plantations in Mexico are so rare that even President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador credited the Guerrero plantations as an experimentation with coca cultivation. So how is it that Mexican cartels have come to control some of the largest coke distribution networks in the US, Europe, and even Asia? It all started in the 1970s, when Mexico turned into a massive transshipment point for cocaine trafficking. Any seizures prior to that point were marginal or largely considered insignificant to drug enforcement officials. Now, up to 70% of all South American cocaine currently passes through the Central American-Mexican corridor. Approximately 50% enters the U.S. by land along the 2,000-mile U.S.-Mexico border. But before I get into that, let's dive in into the history of that white powder. Like in many other nations, in the late 1800s, cocaine and coca wine were commonly prescribed pharmaceuticals in Mexico and were readily available at markets or pharmacies. In 1884, Sigmund Freud, the Austrian psychoanalyst, called it a magical substance. But beyond that, heavier cocaine use was not recorded until the 1970s and 1990s. Before this, cocaine use was generally associated with the upper class or artist. As Paul Gutenberg writes in Andean Cocaine, The Making of a Global Drug, Coca chewing can be dated back 8,000 years to the Peruvian Andes. Gutenberg notes that unlike heroin, cocaine never gained an illicit international smuggling market when both drugs were globally banned in 1915. In the US, in the early 1930s, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, the FBN, found the illicit traffic of cocaine to be insignificant. During World War II, Authorities found that there was apparently no cocaine in the market. Harry Anslinger, the FBN director who we discussed in episode one, used this dry cocaine pipeline as living proof of what tough leadership on anti-narcotics achieved. And he would apply this concept to other drugs like marijuana and heroin. But this cocaine scarcity had more to do with the lack of massive appetite for the drug than it did because of US policies. From the 1930s to the late 1940s, seizures in the U.S. were totaling a couple of ounces a year, if at all. It was until the early 1950s that seizures began totaling up to a kilo per year. In 1962, authorities crossed a 10 kilo mark in seizures. In 1967, a mere 26 pounds of coke were seized at U.S. borders. By 69, that number rose to 52 pounds. But only four years later, the number of pounds seized had exponentially risen to 436 pounds in 1971. By the mid-1970s, coke could be found on nearly all dance floors. Gutenberg credits Richard Nixon's drug policy to the spread of cocaine on American streets. In a time when marijuana was branded as addictive, cocaine was marketed as the antithesis of that. Nixon's anti-marijuana campaigns allowed drug dealers to reposition themselves as providers of what was still perceived as a harmless and soft gourmet drug. The halt of the French Connection heroin pipeline in the 1960s also drove former heroin users to the white powder. Once there was an active demand, attempting to keep the snow off the streets proved nearly impossible. But how did a once medicinal commodity turn into a novel illicit underground craze the illicit trade emerged after the advent of the cold war and the tightening of international prohibition campaigns in the peruvian and bolivian andes from 1947 to 1950 peru's once legal cocaine factories were criminalized and the cultivation and chewing of native coca were reined in under its new anti-drug and anti-communist regime the illicit trade was eventually pushed out of Peru and it found a new home in neighboring Bolivia, which was going through its own revolutionary chaos. It was in Bolivia, says Gutenberg, that jump-started coca's industrialization. Its repression appeared to push the cultivation and production of cocaine to better suited environments. And with it, it also gave traffickers the virtue of evolving capabilities specializations, managerial skills, and a competitive and comparative advantage over their future competitors. Between 1947 and 1964, international cocaine trafficking was pioneered by a new band of Peruvians, Bolivians, Cubans, Chileans, Mexicans, Brazilians, and Argentines, with smuggling corridors popping up in Chile, Cuba, Brazil, and Argentina and exiled Cubans and Mexican mafias were already testing new smuggling routes from Mexico into the U.S. But the illicit trade started small, incredibly small, and resembled something more of, well, disorganized crime. In the 1950s, only a handful of couriers were smuggling cocaine from Peru by the ounce. Ten years later, smuggling had grown to only a few hundred kilos yearly. But by the early 60s, a more organized trafficking approach began to emerge. Chile, along with Cuba, became the major players with systematic growing, processing, and trafficking corridors. With Peru slowly losing its role as the epicenter of cocaine making and Bolivia in disarray, Chileans quickly graduated from part-time smugglers into the heads of the first international drug trafficking groups, mainly to provide for the US and Europe. It was during this time that the drug was starting to be called the drug of neoliberal capitalism for its supposed link to productivity. If arrest or any measure of the number of underground drug rings, the Chileans were at the top with more than 400 Chilean cocaine runners arrested, compared to just a handful in all the other countries just years prior. By the mid-1960s, Chileans were running the illicit trade, and the Chilean-Mexican corridor was booming again. But Cuba wasn't far behind. During the 1950s, Cuba was also becoming a hub for international illicit trade as Cuban labs prepared Andean cocaine for export into the U.S. By that time, Cuba was flagged by Interpol as the main transit point for Bolivian snow entering the U.S. In 1959, Fidel Castro's Cuban revolution forced into exile experienced drug mafias, many of whom fled to Mexico or the U.S. And with them, they took their trade. The Cuban exiles began moving labs to Mexico, and some of them even taught Northern Mexico the tools of the trade, including how to process coca paste into cocaine hydrochloride. By the mid 1960s, the Andean cocaine route was one of the three most known to American law enforcement for its high prevalence of smuggling into the US. By 1962, Miami had also become the second U.S. port for cocaine thanks to its large population of exiled Cubans. And in the early 1960s, the trade returned to Peru with force, bringing the country back into the International Cocaine Smuggling Hall of Fame. For Chile, its dominion of the illicit trade came to a screeching halt with the coup of Salvador Allende at the hands of General Augusto Pinochet in 1973. Pinochet pushed cocaine trafficking out of the country with the help of the DEA, effectively closing Coke's most traveled corridor to the north and ending an era of the best chemist of South America. With that, the illegal trade moved into Colombia, and once it entered Colombia, it would be difficult to disrupt it since the 1960s, the Colombians had racked up experience in smuggling Colombian gold Their famed strain of marijuana from the Caribbean coast. The smugglers, or marimberos, who pioneered their smuggling route by moving contraband and cigarettes, were ready to take on the new cocaine market. Pablo Escobar is one of the most lucrative smugglers to come out of Colombia. He started, as many of the other smugglers did, by dipping his toes in small-scale car theft and by smuggling contraband. By 1974, he was ferrying a few kilos of coke in secret compartments built in his stolen Renault. Not long after, he expanded to a fleet of trucks and planes, including commercial 727s that would bring him to moving 10,000 kilos in a single trip. He had grown so big that he dethroned the established networks of Cuban dealers in Miami and New York. Ruthless violence became the spoken language. By 1975, the Colombians were bringing in around 4 tons of snow to New York and Miami a year. Five years later, they were bringing in around 100 tons. For a trade that had barely existed before 1972, the Colombians quickly dominated it. And for the 1970s United States, cocaine was becoming the drug of choice. It became a status symbol for the American middle class and Wall Street bankers. In 1981, Time Magazine ran a cover calling cocaine, The All-American Drug. As I mentioned earlier, with tough anti-marijuana campaigns in full swing, cocaine was branded as a non-addictive delicacy It was also the middle of America's heroin boom, and for those with an appetite, cocaine was an attractive alternative. And with the heavy demand must come heavy supply and unprecedented earnings to come with it. And the Guadalajara Cartel plates itself in the middle of the booming market. The Guadalajara Cartel, at least by name, was created by the DEA. Prior to that, there had been no mention of a Mexican trafficking organization calling itself a cartel. It was DEA officials that coined that name. But it was a useful designation. It implied that the so-called cartel was structured, unified, and operated under an aligned business model. But it was anything but. As Benjamin T. Smith wrote, It was a volatile group of old-school Sinaloa traffickers kidnappers and former paramilitary hitmen. The Guadalajara Cartel was born from a lineage of trafficking families. And like many other Sinaloa traffickers, its founders fled the Sinaloa Mountains for Guadalajara following Operation Condor. Guadalajara was a perfect town to set up a trafficking empire. There were direct transport lines to the northern border towns and plenty of seasoned criminals looking for their next gig. Ernesto Doneto Fonseca Carrillo was a son of opium brokers and nephew of a Tijuana-based opium and heroin trafficker. His two nephews, Amado and Vicente Carrillo Fuentes, would go on to form the Juarez Cartel. Rafael Caro Quintero was a third-generation trafficker. From an early age, he moved product for Pedro Aviles Perez and was busted and jailed in 1971. After a stint in jail, he moved to Caborca and set up shop growing sheep's tail marijuana. After Aviles Perez was killed in a federal ambush, Caro Quintero took control of his boss's trafficking routes to the north. Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo was the odd one out. He did not have a trafficking pedigree, but getting into law enforcement gave him the in with the traffickers he needed. He joined the Sinaloa State Police under Governor Leopoldo Sanchez-Seliz, It was there that he met Eduardo Lalo Fernandez, Mexico's most prominent heroin chemist and first major cocaine importer. Felix Gallardo also became the governor's private bodyguard and godfather to the governor's son. Together with the governor's protection, as well as his expanding circle of traffickers, Felix Gallardo quickly made a name for himself brokering deals between drug traffickers and corrupt state officials. In 1975, the DEA claimed that Mexicans were trafficking between 35 to 40% of Americans' Colombian cocaine. By 1979, Felix Gallardo was under the DEA's radar as Mexico's principal mover of cocaine. By the 1980s, the Mexicans were moving about one third of Colombian coke into the US, and they were making big bucks. In those days, they charged between $1,000 to $2,000 per kilo to move it across the border. Once in the U.S., the Colombians would take back their contraband and distribute it across major U.S. cities. Pablo Acosta Villarreal, known as El Zorro de Ojinaga, or the Ojinaga Fox, for example, charged $1,250 per kilo. On average, he would reportedly move some 5 tons per month making a staggering $75 million a year. According to U.S. and Colombian officials, the first link between Mexican traffickers and Colombian producers was Juan Ramón Mata Ballesteros, a Honduran trafficker who worked with the Medellín cartel and had also done business with Mexican smugglers. One of his first clients was Alberto Cecilia Falcón. Remember him? Mataballesteros reportedly provided the self-professed CIA asset with Colombian cocaine. Mataballesteros would smuggle coke into the Mexican city airport. From there, it would make its way into police vehicles and then on its way to the northern border of Matamoros. From the onset, the smuggling of cocaine from Colombia to Mexico and then up north relied on the exclusive protection of the attorney general's office the PGR, and the Federal Judicial Police, the PJF. Mata introduces Mexican contacts to the founder of the Medellin cartel, Gonzalo Rodríguez Gacha, known as the Mexican, for his apparent love of all things Mexican. In 1983, Felix Gallardo and Mata finally met. The Honduran drug smuggler then moved to Guadalajara to organize shipments for this nascent cartel. His extensive connections to the Colombians allowed Félix Gallardo an entry into the massive Colombian Coke emporium. Mexico's evolution into a major transshipment point in the illicit drug world was largely as a result of the prosecution of Colombian drug cartels. In 1984, as part of the South Florida Task Force, the United States Coast Guard and the DEA began tightening vigilance off the Florida coast and brought the Colombian-Bahama-Florida route to a screeching halt. Following the crackdown off of southern Florida, Colombian cartels were forced to reroute their supply from speedboats in the Caribbean to inland or air routes via Mexico. Throughout the 1980s, Mexican smugglers were the chosen couriers for hire by the Colombian cartels. The Colombians began moving their product through Panama. From there, Mexican couriers would take it overland through Mexico and into the U.S. From there, Colombian cells operating in U.S. territory would pick up their product for distribution. At first, commissions for the Mexican courier started as low as 20% of a load's wholesale value. As the flow of drugs increased, so did their demands for a higher commission. First, to 30%, then 35%, 40%, and it continued increasing until the Colombians refused to raise transportation commissions. According to investigative reporter William C. Rempel, Neto's nephew, the future leader of the Juarez cartel, Amado Carrillo Fuentes, the Lord of the Skies, was the go-to guy for the Cali and Medellin cartels' Mexico distribution. When the Colombians refused to raise transportation commissions, Carrillo Fuentes blocked the distribution pipeline. Instead of passing the smuggled shipments along to regional traffickers across the country, the Mexicans let them pile up in warehouses. The cocaine was held hostage. One of those storage sites was in Silmar in Los Angeles, California. On September 28, 1989, a joint task force of local and federal drug agents raided the warehouse. On September 28, 1989, a joint task force of local and federal drug agents raided the warehouse. It was held close with a $6 padlock and no security. They discovered $12 million in $120 bills and 21 tons of individually wrapped two-pound bricks of snow, making it, to this day, their largest cocaine drug bust in U.S. history. Special Assistant U.S. Attorney Susan Bryan-Deason said the cocaine had an estimated street value of 6.9 billion. The massive coke raid is a subject of a few conspiracy theories. The most prevalent is that Carrillo Fuentes' men called the anonymous tip to U.S. law enforcement In retaliation for not agreeing to higher commissions whether it was a bitter carrillo fuentes or a concerned citizen the colombians were taking big hits no product no payout the colombians were now missing payments to their mexican middlemen and the mexicans responded by opting for a payout in product at first it was one kilo of coke for every two or three kilos smuggled across the border then It became one for one according to a cali cartel accountant who testified before u.s court in 1997 the colombians called the system one for one half to the mexicans half to the colombians it was a win-win well kind of the mexicans understood that by delivering large loads of coke across the u.s border they were taking the majority of the risk even risking extradition to the U.S. if caught. By the mid-1990s, the Mexicans were receiving enough coke to control a part of the large wholesale U.S. market. They began setting up their distribution systems in key U.S. cities including Los Angeles, Chicago, and Denver, and across large swaths of the Pacific Northwest, the Midwest, and the South. According to U.S. officials, The Colombians agreed to the arrangement, provided that the Mexicans promised not to operate in Colombian strongholds, particularly New York, Miami, and the rest of the eastern seaboard. In 1994, the passing of the North American Free Trade Agreement between Mexico, the U.S., and Canada helped to drive up cross-border smuggling. With its passage, more than 2 million trucks began flowing northward across the border annually. Only a fraction of them were inspected for heroin, cocaine, or meth. According to a 1999 White House report, the year that NAFTA came into effect, commercial vehicle smuggling increased by 25%. It meant that much of the trafficking didn't just need to be via air. It could also now return to land tenfold. By 1997, Mexico had more than doubled the cocaine traffic that was previously coming out of the Caribbean. By the end of the 1990s, Mexicans were reportedly moving between 80 to 90% of coke on America's streets. After the Mexicans took over for the Colombians, Mexico became the home of the biggest trafficking organizations in all of Latin America. Join us for the next episode on the corrupt band of the Federal Judicial Police, the PJF, and the Federal Security Directorate, DFS, and the rise of the Guadalajara cartel. This episode was written by Demoler, post-production by Sharpspoon Media.